And so um, the questions about, um, you know, what am I bringing to the table? Like, what did I learn in my home? What did I observe or what did I come to believe even subconsciously about God and about people because of how I was raised? You know, who do I believe a father to be? And, and what is the role they have? And are fathers dependable? And are they really trustworthy? Are they really good? Right? You know, these are just kind of formation questions for us individually. And then you have to kind of expand the lens a little bit to say, okay, society and culture, again, subconsciously, implicit biases. Like, what are the things that I've been fed? And I, because I've been a consumer for so long, I just accept it as true. That was Natasha Sistrunk Robinson, and you're listening to the Things Above podcast. All right. So, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson is here with me today, and I am so We've known each other how long now? Oh, Do you gosh. know? It's been at least four years, yeah. maybe more. Yeah, I think that's right. And you came and spoke at the Apprentice Gathering, and so that's where I first got to know you. We've also Mm -hmm. spoken at the same conference and gotten to be on the same platform and spend a little more time. That was in California, I think. Where was that? Well, I know we were at Missio (laughs) together in Virginia. Okay, that was the opposite coast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, yeah, that was at Missio. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I got to hear one of your talks there as well. Um, So, but today I'd love to talk about your latest book because A Sojourner's Truth, Choosing Freedom and Courage in a Divided World is your latest book. Am I right? I want to be sure. That is correct. That is correct. Okay. I thought so, but you know, (laughs) people produce books and, well, I love this book and uh, there's so much we can talk about. I hope we have time to talk about so many things that I am excited to to talk about. But I want to begin with a quote that's on page 80. And it's a box quote, which we know as authors, that's like we, we want people to really notice when we have these <laughs> quotes in boxes to Make or sure the publisher people don't miss wants them. them to really the, or notice. the publisher. Let's be honest. That's right. They, somebody else might have said, hey, that's a good sentence. But so I'm going to read it. All human beings are created in the image of God with dignity, inherent value, and the responsibility to exercise dominion on earth. So I start with that, Natasha, because this is the Things Above podcast. And That is a thought from above, in my view. That is a thought that is from the heavenly realities, and it's an important one. We're made in God's image, and we have dignity and value, responsibility and dominion. It's just so important to think that. But I want to start with that because we're going to have, I'm guessing, a pretty frank discussion about the reality of the world we live in, where that truth isn't experienced by everyone. So I just want to start with that and let you kind of riff on your thoughts Hmm. on that in light of the book, and we'll just see where we go. Sure. Yeah. um, As I think about it today, um, I don't know when we're going to publish this, but of course, today everyone is 
frantic about this coronavirus. Right. And um, so today, my thoughts and, and this week, my thoughts have been with the elderly. My thoughts have been with um, the millions of, of children that would miss meals because they're not in public school um, or their parents would miss work, which will ultimately impact their life, not just for today or next week, but for a very long time in very negative ways that you know have yet to be seen. And that's not to cause us to be frantic, but it's a reality that we live in. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's something we really, we have to, as Americans, get to a place where we're um, dealing better with each other. And I say Americans, not that other people don't, but this is where I live. This has been, right. you know, my home. And um I I think we 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 give a lot of lip service even in the church for for how we love or or forgive or extend grace or pursue justice, um, but at the end of the day, uh, we don't always live out this truth, right? That all humans are created in the image of God, and that does not mean that I have to agree with you. We have to see eye to eye on things, but that means that there's a certain um, respect that I can give. There's a certain um, way I can honor you and the ways that I listen and the ways that I respond, um, the ways that I engage, the, the things I choose to see or not see, I think that's very, very important. Um, with that that value, the way that God, when he created us uh, in Genesis and saying that everything, first of all, before he even created humans, he said everything was good. And then he created humans and said that humans were good. And of course, we are unique in that we are the only created species that has been created in the image of God. And so there's something um, spiritual, <laughs> you know, about right. our human existence. And I think, um, you know, because of that, um, that, that, that means that we all have responsibility and we all have agency. And so, you know, some theologians would call that the cultural mandate, that, that we have a responsibility to create, to cause the things that God has given us to flourish, to ensure that goodness comes from it, that that we are seeing beauty. I know you love this language, truth and beauty, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, you know, like, so all those things. And so um, I think the brokenness of this world, the reality of the the brokenness and the sin and the lostness and the darkness of this world, the spiritual warfare of this world is that um, everyone um, in their day-to-day -day realities are not um, living into the reality of that responsibility, um, that they are not uh, seeing beauty every day, that they are not flourishing, that they are not being able to grow or cause other things around them to grow and thrive and flourish. And, and, um, and I think that's that's the reality mm. of, of living in the now and not yet kingdom of God. It is the reality of living in a world that has been separated from from, from God. Um, and so as, as disciples, people who follow Jesus, um, I want to live in the reality of that that, that kingdom that Jesus has ushered in and, and want to do the work um, and take action to ensure that that people's lives and their value um, and their responsibility are, are honored, you know, as best as we can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, what you're saying reminded me of um, a discussion I had just yesterday with my undergraduate college students, and we were reading um, a section in Renovation of the Heart where Dallas Willard essentially is saying that the human person is created with such dignity and being made in God's image means that we are capable of incredible good, mm -hmm. but also incredible evil. Mm -hmm. And 
I, so I've kind of been thinking about that, that part of being made in the image of God means that we can do things that are beautiful and good and true, and we can do things that are ugly and evil and false, you know. And reading your book, I have to be honest, there there were times, I said this in my endorsement, that there are parts of it that are hard to read because mm-hmm. you're telling your truth, your story, and it's maybe a part of something we don't want to think about. And even just what you said today of this, of COVID-19 and its impact on not just America, but the globe and how it's affecting how we respond ethically and how we care for one another. So um, also quoting from page 80, uh, this sentence jumped out at me in light of the fact that we were going to have this conversation, but you write, we must take the risk of having honest conversations. Mm. And I, I, I thought about that. I paused, I underlined and then highlighted, and then I put a star next to it because I thought, yeah, that's one of the great things about your book and about the ministry that God's given you is you're helping us have honest conversations and it can be risky and challenging. And so I want to thank you for, first of all, having the courage to encourage us to have these conversations. And just to say in general, I know as a writer, you write a book, you don't know how it's going (laughs) to impact people. And then you travel around and talk about it and you get reactions and Amazon reviews and whatnot. But what's been the reaction for you from, from this book and the work that you've been doing? Well, the people that I have the privilege of engaging with, uh, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I, quite honestly, would love to get the book in front of more people um, because I think that these are conversations we need to have. And I don't um, believe, even within our Christian family, that we're wanting to have those honest conversations. Right. We don't want to look at the hard things. We don't want to acknowledge the mess. And, and if we look at um, just a quick business side of things, kind of what sells, even in Christian market, a lot of it is very much me focused and inspirational and what's going to make my life better, you know, and eating the last cookie, which I think you should eat the last cookie, by the way. I don't have a problem with that. I'm just saying that, <laughs> I'm just saying that our life is not all about what pleases us, you know? Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, we have to get to a place if we're going to be better together as a society, that we're willing to do the hard things and step outside of our comfort zones and keep reading even when, you know, we are um, disheartened or our feelings are hurt or whatever. Um, so I think that's very, very important. And um, yeah, it's just this reality. I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, when you were quoting Dallas of, um, you know, in, in Genesis, you know, chapter five, what 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 God says when, when Seth is born is that Seth was made in the image of 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 his father as well, right? So Adam and Eve are created in the image of God, and then Seth is created in the image of God and in the image of his father, <laughs> right? Mm, yeah. And so this very real reality that that goodness can come from all of us, and 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 darkness and evil can come from all of us. And and uh, Brian Stevenson, he's the um, lawyer 
who wrote the New York Times bestseller, Just Mercy. And um, I quote him in, in the book, but he also, um, the movie just came out recently about his story um, and really the work that he's done right. to get innocent people off death row. And one of the things he says in, the, in his book, Just Mercy, is um, each of us is better than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is better than the worst thing mm. we've ever done. And I think about that because um, a lot of times when we're looking at sins and and uh, hardship and evil, um, the easy thing to do is to pass judgment or to condemn, which uh, we know that's a different spirit. Uh, but the, the, the more honest thing <laughs> to do is that, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, on any given day, on any given Sunday, any given bad day, I'm capable of doing all of those things. <laughs> and the only reason I don't is because Jesus has kept me. Mm-hmm. Not because not because Natasha is so good. Um, not that good all the time. <laughs> right? right. Right. Like I know I know my own thoughts and, and mine and capabilities. And sometimes, you know, you don't even know this in a bit. But um just reality that each of us is is better than the worst thing we ever done. So to extend the same grace to people that we have received, you know, the same forgiveness that we have received. Um, and that does take work. I will say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge to say, I'm this sacred being made in God's image. I'm loved, as I often say, even on my worst day, in my worst moments, God loves me unconditionally. And yet also admit that there's depravity in my heart and brokenness. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm shocked of thoughts I'm capable of having. And and so we live within that tension, right, of of embracing this reality that we are these sacred, amazing beings who can also do some bad stuff. And that's where we live. Um, I want to just let our listeners know who may not know about you, because your story in itself is fascinating. I mean, share with our listeners, because you you went to the Naval Academy. You are, you were a Marine, or do you always say you're a Marine? I don't know so, what you. So once a Marine, always a Marine. Okay. So I am a former Marine Corps captain, but I am always a Marine. Okay. I w- I'm saluting right now. You can't see it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just a little scared. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and your family served yeah. in the military, mm-hmm. not just you. So share with our listeners your your history and how you chose to become a member of the, of the military. Sure. So my husband's prior Marine as well. Um, we met to we met when we were both um, in officer training program. So I was in a preparatory mm. school um, preparing to go to the Naval Academy. He was probably enlisted, went and enlisted right after high school, three days after his high school graduation. He went to enlist in Marine Corps. He was an avionics technician and then um, went into an officer training program. He was medically discharged his senior year of college, unfortunately. Um, but my mother... Uh, served in the army. She was a typist because that's what women were allowed to do in the army at that time. <laughs> um, but her dad served in the army. He's a World War II veteran. Um, and her brother uh, served in the army as well. Um, he is a Desert Storm um, veteran and he uh, retired as well. And then uh, in my generation, on my dad's side, my, my father who raised me, um, I had a group of of cousins. Um, One of his sisters had four boys and three of those four boys have served um, in the military. So two of them went to the Marine Corps and one of them went into into the Air Force. So we have a 
military family. Um, and then I also have a first cousin, um, my mom's sister's son who went into the army as well. He's still serving um, t- today. Mm. So w- one of the things you did when you gave your talk here at the Apprentice Gathering was you opened up with the Pledge of Allegiance. And you said, I love this country. And uh, who did you quote? Who said, and that because I love this country. Ah, that's what I thought. Yeah, say I that quote. I love him. Yeah, yeah, I love him too. Um, I, I think it's, it's along the lines of I love this country. And because I love her, because I love her, I insist on critiquing her or criticizing her perpetually or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, and I use the word critique. I think he said criticize. Um, but that's but the point. Yeah. I right. love him. I love yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. So you do, I mean, you are in a position to say that, to say, look, I've served this country. I uh, enlisted because of that and I respect and value that, but I'm also going to speak truth. And that's what you did in that talk that day. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but I think, I think you're the only speaker in all of the nine years of that conference that was given a standing ovation. Did you know that? I did not know that. Well, you knew it. <laughs> that happened because you were there. I was there. I was there yeah. for it. And it was a beautiful moment. And you spoke such truth to power, as Richard mm-hmm. Foster liked to say. Um, but because of that, you can you can speak some hard truths. So, you know, let's talk about that. Sure. On page uh, 55, you write, none of us develops our worldview in a vacuum. And that's important because, as you know, Natasha, in in my ministry, I talk a lot about true narratives and false narratives. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear that there are a lot of false narratives out there about God, about us, about the kingdom and all that sort of thing. But I love that you open with that, that none of us develops our worldview in a vacuum. Can you unpack that? Because that's a that's an important idea. Right, because uh, so that statement, that's the first sentence in the introductory section for uh, history part two. in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part two, history in the book. And so um, even, you know, I'm, I'm theologically trained. So I went to Gordon-Conwell for my master's. Um, I'm actually in a doctorate program right now um, uh, for my D-men, which is a cohort between Northport Theological Seminary and Fuller. And so uh, what they tell you, you know, in these spaces, uh, of, of these theological spaces, particularly Protestant ones, is that, you know, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. And I love the word and I stick to the word, <laughs> you know, um, I stick closely to the word because I believe the word has ability to help us and keep us. Um, but the assumption then, which is a false one, is that there's nothing else impacting the way that the lens in which we approach the text. Right. Um, and so. The reality is there are all kinds of things that we bring to the text and that really uh, impacts the way we interpret and impacts how we respond and what conclusions we draw. And so, uh, and I'm not saying any of that is bad, it just is. And so we need to acknowledge it because I, I find what I find um, because God has given me the um, ability uh to be a bridge builder in in many cases, and so I go into very diverse spaces and um, and see how people draw different conclusions and 
um, and then the assumptions that they make about people who draw different conclusions, right? And so um, it's very interesting when I when I see those dynamics because the, the, the sometimes in a say for example in a very conservative space the conclusion could be that we have the right answer about this and they mm. don't because they don't approach the text or love the text or honor the text in the same way, and it could and 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 that could be the case but it could also be that they also love the text and they also love jesus and they also um want to honor it but they just have drawn different conclusions because their worldview and the things that they see and the impact the 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 practices you know the the, the actions that ref- that flow out of this thinking um is not aligning with what they believe Jesus to, to, who they believe Jesus to be and what they've observed from his uh, earthly ministry and um, the repercussions of this kingdom that he's ushered in. And so um, what I try to do as best I can, not as a matter of uh, imposition or what I think I know, but really more coming as a student and as a learner myself and as a bridge builder to come asking questions and say, okay, um, yes, this is what we know about the text. Of course, if you're going to be a good theologian, you need to ask the question first, who was the author and what was the context and what was the message to that audience first to them before we ask what it is to us. But also to say, okay, now what am I bringing to the table? Like what what is the formation that I've gotten? Um, I was just having a conversation with a dear friend and, and um, like a spiritual advisor yesterday. And one of the things we were talking about, he was saying, you know, there are some things we have to disciple ourselves out of. <laughs> Right. So right. We have to disciple ourselves out of before we can be discipled um, um, as unto um, as unto the Lord. And, and even some things that we perceive, we perceive as right. Um, I was teaching just a couple of weeks ago and I said, um, you know, looking at the difference between Saul and Paul, same person. Right. Saul was very zealous and very self-righteous and he was wrong. <laughs> right, right. Right. You could be you could be very zealous and be very wrong. And so um, the questions about. Um, you know, what am I bringing to the table? Like, what did I learn in my home? What did I observe? Or what did I come to believe even subconsciously about God and about people because of how I was raised? You know, who do I believe a father to be? And and what is the role they have? And are fathers dependable? And are they really trustworthy? Are they really good? Right? You know, these are just kind of formation questions for us individually. And then you have to kind of expand the lens a little bit to say, Okay, society and culture, again, subconsciously, implicit biases, like what are the things that I've been fed and I because I've been a consumer for so long, I just accept it as true because this is all I've been fed my entire life. Um, and that's some of that is national stuff because we don't see, like we, we probably, I don't think we're good at all in America about paying attention to what's happening globally unless we're fighting somebody, right? And so right. I think that's, that's not good. That's not good for us. And so you have that social, cultural conversation. You have that internal um, relationship and and um, you know, family kind of upbringing conversation. You have the education, you know, whether or not we're educated and how we're educated plays a large part of how we see um, theology and how we attract, uh, how we address people. And then, and then of course, in that historical context, and this is where we really get into trouble in America because we only learn most of the time one side of history. And, and that even right. is not all the way true. 
It's like bits and pieces of things that have been passed down to us. And so if you really want to be educated about American history, you really have to do a lot of that work on your own because you don't get it in grade school. Um, if you don't know and have great relationship with a historian, um, you just won't have it. And so then the responsibility comes to us to read more broadly, to watch documentaries, to um, fill in the gaps, which are pretty big. Um, um, most of the time right. um, about our education and lack thereof and how that shapes the ways that we view other people who are different than us. Boy, you, you said so much there as you often do uh, in, I mean, you just, it's so condensed what you're saying. And I think that's one of the things I love about your book so much is you're naming the reality. Even, even if I can say, well, I don't want this to be true. It is. I mean, it, it is the reality of where we live. And earlier in our conversation today, Natasha, you, you pointed to some things that can be done. It's, you know, knowing people um, outside of your socioeconomic group or, um, you know, stepping out, traveling, getting to know, all those things open our minds to other things. Hopefully you and I having this conversation does that. Um, it just, you know, when we, when we do these things, you begin to see something that you didn't see before. And that's one of the things I love about your book is just in reading it, as I mentioned, some hard stories at times. Um, I mean, the story about when you were uh, in the Naval Academy and that woman that was so mean to you, that was a hard section mm -hmm. to read. Um, but I thought, well, that's your reality, right? You lived in that, mm -hmm. that someone was uh, attacking you, it, it appears from the story. Well, I'm going to let you tell the story. So share with us what that was about and, and how you navigated through that. Going to the Naval Academy for me, uh, when my parents, they didn't have a lot financially. Um, and my dad always worked. I never saw him um, that I could remember a call off on a, on a day off because he was sick. You know, you just really can't afford to be sick when your family is dependent on you and you're a blue collar worker. My father was a roofing contractor. And so he always worked and my mother always um, supported him in that. And she worked part-time jobs when she could, um, when her health allowed her to. And at other times she was a stay at home mom. And so that's where I came from. I'm the oldest of three children. Uh, and so it's very important to mm -hmm. me as I was making my college decisions, uh, because my parents said to me uh, in sixth grade that they knew that I had the ability to go to college. They wanted me to go to college. They didn't have money to pay for it. And I needed to figure it out. And I made choices from that day forward uh, about what I was going to do because I knew that I wanted to go to college, that I wanted to go to college for free, and that that was going to have somehow have an impact um, on my life. And I wanted to have agency. I wanted to have the ability to take care of myself um, without my parents being worried about me. And I wasn't waiting on marriage to do that for me. You know, I just mm. wasn't because that's culturally, that's not a thing. <laughs> you know, mm. And so um, it's like, okay, you got to go out here, put your big girl pants on and, and, and make it happen. And so um, that's really what I went into the Naval Academy with. And so um, when I was met with such resistance, not just because of Natasha, because quite frankly, Jim, at this time, these people didn't know me. Like they didn't mm. know me. Um, they were just responding because, you know, based on the person that they thought they knew or what they um, perceived about people who looked like me. Right. But they didn't know me because they didn't take the time to get to know me. And so if they had known me, they would have known um, 
about, you know, just kind of my, uh, my, my work ethic and my character and, um, and my, my leadership abilities and, um, you know, the way I, I loved and cared about education and learning and, and all these things, but they didn't take the time. And so, um, I was in summer training at the Naval Academy and this woman essentially said, uh, the, the long story short of it, she just basically said to me, um, in private, cause I was in the hallway coming from the uh, restroom and, and no one else was around. And she just basically said that, uh, she didn't like me, um, that she didn't think I belonged at her, her school. Watch the language because uh, it was her school. It was mm. in my school. I got accepted and and earned my way in, but it wasn't my school. It was her school, um, and that she was going to do everything she could to get me kicked out. She was going to write up my get my paperwork written up, get me negative paperwork, and I was going to basically build up a file um, uh, on me. And once my file got so big that they would kick me out. And so uh, I said to her, ma'am, yes, ma'am, because I only had five basic responses that I could offer her. And that was the one that was not, um, you know, that would not be perceived as me making an excuse, which is one of the five basic responses. No excuse, ma'am. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't and it wasn't me trying to defend myself because that would be perceived as disrespectful um, and talking back. And so I said, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And I carried on um, throughout the day. And that was just one of several instances where, um, you know, I would just say I was singled out. And, um, you know, but for me. The, the big picture, knowing who I was when I got there was a saving grace. Um, having the faith that I had, um, even in this early stages, was a saving grace. And the reality that um, I knew, not necessarily what I was up against, but I knew where I was going. And, and, and I came to that school to graduate. And I had every intention of doing that. <laughs> and that mm. conversation didn't change that. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's those kind of stories. They're they're so stark because you hear them and you think, "Wow, how did that happen?" But it does, and and you All you can get time. angry. Yeah, that's that's right. Well, I want to quote again from page seventy three. Uh, you write, "My strongest conviction toward advocacy is that God wants people to live freely. This conviction has put me on a path to pursue uh, racial justice." And then a couple of sentences down, you write this, and this is what I want your comment on. You write, I don't expect significant movement on this spectrum from any person who doesn't claim to know Christ. Now, I, I, I think I understand that, but I want you to hear, I want to hear you explain, like, that's a big sentence. And, and how did you arrive at that, uh, at that conclusion? Because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Because if I'm honest, I see how hard it is for the people who claim to know Christ to move. There we you go. Slow. We slow <laughs> in our actions towards justice. <laughs> we, like, we, you know what I'm right. saying? It's like, I'm like, do we really believe the things we say we believe? Because I, like, if we believe it, we seem like we should respond differently. Um, but I also just look at it. You know, I'm very logical. I was, I was having, um, <laughs> we were having family dinner last night. And we were talking about this coronavirus and my daughter, who's 12, almost 13, um, she, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of giving my position on it. And she was like, my what? not everyone's logical thinking like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and so I'm a very logical thinking uh, thinker. And I don't think people 
um, when there's a perception, again, it's a false narrative, but it is a, a perception can feel very real to people. Um, if there's a perception that if I give up something, if the playing, if the playing field is level, then I'm going to lose. Very few people would take the L. Very few. Hmm. Right. Because most people like if it's going to be between me and you now, I've been trained in Marine Corps. If it's me and you in the street and it's you and me, you know, fighting for the last meal, like I'm probably going to pick me and my family and my kids <laughs> every time, right. every single time. And the only reason I would share at all or take a little bit of an L is because Christ has compelled me to do that. It's not in our fallen nature to do that at all. And that's why right. I made the statement that I made. Well, I love it, and I totally agree with it. And, you know, this podcast is built on Colossians 3, where Paul says, um, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. But then later in Colossians 3, he said, um, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I study the scriptures, particularly Paul's epistles, yeah. this was a shocking thing, this idea that Christ is in all of us, mm -hmm. and that's the, the bond of our unity. And when I think about the early church and, and just the, the church at Colossae that I'm re referencing, Paul's writing this letter to them, and they were a mixed group of people. There were people who were slaves, and, and slavery was a little different, perhaps, than what we might think of with it, but it was a reality. So when he says there's in Christ there's no slave or free, uh, Jew or Greek, I mean, huge differences. Mm -hmm. And there they were as a part of the body of Christ together, and Paul's just reminding them, the only reason we're connected is that we are one in Christ. Um, I mean, he doesn't hearken back to Genesis 1. He could have, and it would have been mm -hmm. great, but in, he could have said, we're all made in God's image. But he says, we, you know, Christ is all and is in all. So when I read your statement um, about, I don't expect significant movement on this spectrum from any person who doesn't claim to know Christ, that makes sense to me. But I appreciated your honesty in saying, we're supposed to be better than we are. <laughs> Um, <laughs> please help us, Lord. Please have help us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. Have help mercy. Us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because oh. that's a first century document, right? And here we are mm. Mm -mm. 20 centuries later going, help us, Lord. Yeah. So help it's us. where we're, it's the reality in which we live, un unfortunately. But we're having this conversation and that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And you've written um, a beautiful book. And let me just ask this, too, because uh, the driving image of the book is um, the story of Moses yeah. and the deliverance of the people um, of Israel from Egyptian captivity. Uh, tell our listeners why you chose that as the, as the driving image that you have throughout the book, and you do it so beautifully in weaving in that narrative. But talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a part of our um, Black church tradition, really. Uh, you know, I was raised in a Black church, um, in the Black church, um, whatever we, how we define that. Um, and uh, 
you know, there's just always been this reality. Even, you know, people sometimes forget that the civil rights movement was first, I would say first, a, a Christian movement. I mean, these were people that were motivated by and large by their faith to take action. And so um, such is the case with, you know, our people who uh, were enslaved and brought to this country, um, regardless of, you know, what some of the narratives are and what people tell you that uh, Christianity did not start in Europe. It's not a white man's religion, right? It's an Eastern <laughs> book, um, the Bible is. And these are people that were from the, the East, including um, some of the first African believers. And so um, the people that were brought here and enslaved, um, those who made it, who did not die on the journey or um, Lord forbid, kill themselves on the journey, um, or their children because they didn't uh, want them to have a life of literally hell on earth. Um, those who made it here, uh, generations of them, hundreds of years were born and died in slavery. And they did that, most of them, with a hope that God will deliver. And um, that hope of God being a deliverer uh, was largely grounded in the text of the Exodus narrative. That yeah. in the same way that God delivered the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt for 400 years, that God surely is able, is how the Black people say, well, he is able to do it, um, and he will um, do it. And so there's this hope and expectation, even in the midst of the, the horror and a, the trauma um, and the violence that was slavery, that God will deliver. And so... Um, when you think about that Moses and the Exodus narrative, it was never just about Moses and Moses just being a great leader, which is how a lot of my um, um, teaching, uh, you know, I receive, you know, basically from an individualized Western context. Um, but it's really what God was doing on behalf of a people and how he was gathering the people to shape and form those, that, those people um, into the people that he wanted them to be. Not the people they were because they were stiff necked people, but the people that he wanted them to be. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, this idea that even in the midst of our wilderness, even in the midst of our struggle, in the, even in the midst of our suffering, that God is using that, um, that he has, um, not to say that he necessarily ordained it, but he, he allowed it in, um, in his full, and the purpose in it um, has to be, according to Paul, for our good. And, and the good is not just that it feels good, it looks good right now. We continue in Romans 8, 29, you know, he says that it is for our good um, that we are purpose and crafted into the image of Jesus. Hmm. And so what I believe and what I've seen, if I look at American history, that is black history and the black contributions to America and the contributions of the black church and black people to this country is that, uh, you know, we as a people have a great deal to offer, um, a richness to offer and being faithful to God, not because we have been triumphant and powerful and had the most money and had the most things, but because we have seen that God has proven himself to be faithful and a miracle worker um, throughout our history. And we still stand in, in spite of everything that we've um, experienced and been through. And so when I look at my personal journey, um, I see the faithfulness and the hand of God on my life. I'm very, and so even though I've, I've been through a lot of hard things, a lot of hard things, um, that I, I'm still here. I'm still standing and, um, and I know that's because of the grace of God and, and that God has been present and near to me um, on 
on the journey. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that historically, right? That that within your own, the tradition that you grew up in, that's the story of Moses and the people of Israel um, and, and their longing for liberation. Um, it, its cultural context is there. Yes. So this is a section uh, called Stand Up to Pharaoh. And so, um, again, I was teaching about this a couple of weeks ago of, you know, the, the conversation that Moses is having with Pharaoh amongst the Israelites and the Egyptians is really who's God. That's what's happening here. So when God is sending these plagues, he's trying to move Pharaoh to action, to submission, really, to saying, like, I am God, you are not, because in this ancient time, Pharaoh was perceived as divine. And so we know that, that he's not because like the rest of us human, he, he dies. Right? Right. right. And so we have we have a living God. And so um, so this is what uh, I was just, you know, compelled to kind of look at this narrative, like who is God in the midst of this wilderness and his desire to set and liberate people. And how has that shown up for black people in America? And so the title of the section is Stand Up to Pharaoh. When people of color cry out for justice. They are crying out to God for freedom. We do this for our own sake and for each other. It is also an opportunity for white people to see the error of the distorted message that has been perpetuated throughout history. It is a challenge to change the narrative, to tell the truth. When the people of God collectively say Black Lives Matter, it is a prophetic lament, a cry to God to deliver, execute justice, and be a defense. God sent the Israelites a savior. By the time Moses brought the message of deliverance to Pharaoh, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. God heard their groans and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Because of his concern, God sent Moses to deliver a clear message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Can you hear the cries of God's people throughout history? Through blood and white supremacy, let my people go. Through frogs and slavery, let my people go. Through gnats and black codes, let my people go. Through flies and sharecropping, let my people go. Through death of livestock and lynching, let my people go. Through boils and Jim Crow segregation, let my people go. Through hell and voter suppression, let my people go. Through locusts and racism, let my people go. Through darkness and the war on drugs, let my people go. Through the death of your firstborn and mass incarceration, let my people go. Slavery, slavery in all of its forms must cease. Go down, Moses, way down to Egypt land. And tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Amen. 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 Well, that is a prophetic word that I believe God's given you, Natasha. And I'm mm -hmm. grateful that you have the courage to speak it. Um, I just, I think you're brave. <laughs> when I think of you, I just think she's brave. I want to be like her when I grow up. <laughs> And I just appreciate you on so many levels, your, your intellect, your, your bravery, your creativity and courage and um, ability to speak truth to us. I mean, the next line in the book that where you were just reading from on page 80 is, we must take the risk of having honest conversations. Mm -hmm. And I hope that those listening today are glad that we did, that we took the risk of having an honest conversation 
And I'm grateful for you and your work. And I, I pray a blessing upon you. And I know that God's going to continue to do great things through you, Natasha. So thanks for being uh, on our podcast today. Thank you for having me. And I receive that blessing in Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. 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 Let's do it again. Just Indeed. write another book or something. Give us some reason and we'll get you back on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Fred. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. I know I did. And I hope you join me for our next episode. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. And if you want to listen to Natasha's talk at the Apprentice Gathering, you can also do that as well at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>